Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi, this is Stephen Moe. Today we're going to be speaking with Elena Casolari, who is the co-founder and executive president of Opus Impact Fund, which is the first Italian investment vehicle which targets early-stage social enterprises in East Africa and India. And she has some fascinating insights for us about what it means to be an impact investor. I was really lucky to catch her while she was here in Christchurch at the Social Enterprise World Forum. Here's an excerpt from that interview. Because I think that uh, at the end, everyone, every each of us, uh, will ask and will wonder, will ask himself and will wonder why is here and uh, why is uh, on this planet and why is uh, living and existing a life. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, we should all live with the idea of making a difference mm. or trying to. I feel really fortunate with the quality of guests that we've been able to get onto this podcast. And next week, we're going to be going a completely different direction when we talk with Gary Shaw, who formerly worked as an anti-human trafficker. And he's incredibly transparent about his journey and both the highs and lows of working in that area. If you don't want to miss out on that and upcoming episodes, then hit subscribe. And if you leave a rating or review in the podcast app that you use to listen to this, then that will help to get the word out. Also, consider sharing it with a friend. Now let's get into that interview with Elena. So I'm here with Elena Casolari, the co-founder and president of Opus Impact Fund, which supports social enterprises in developing countries and also hopefully in the near future in Italy. Um, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. It's, a, it's really a pleasure being here. And it's, I really appreciate your time because I know you've just flown in and so there's a bit of jet lag and you know, you're ready for the Social Enterprise World Forum. Yeah, I arrived uh, yesterday after a very, very long trip. Uh, and I, I should say that I haven't recovered yet from jet lag, but uh, it's really exciting uh, to be here and uh, learn about the landscapes of social enterprise here in New Zealand and meeting uh, hopefully many, many people in the next coming days. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to have you here and to have so many other people coming from around the world. Um, What we do on this show is we talk a lot about purpose and we talk a lot about why people do what they do. So we're going to get to that a bit later on, but I'm hoping that we can go back to um, where you've come from and tell us a little bit maybe about your childhood and what your education was like. Well, I I never thought uh, uh, back uh, when I was uh, really young, um about uh, doing what I'm doing now uh, of course I was uh, attracted by the social space and uh, my first experience uh, uh, of volunteering in a um, non-profit organization was when I was at university and I spent a couple of months uh, in, uh, in in Kenya um, supporting a local organization, uh, but mainly dealing with kids and uh, not really leveraging on uh, uh, what I learned at that time uh, at, at school. 
And uh, then at the university, I studied uh, business administration and finance. And I did a completely different uh, um, job. Um, I joined the investment banking uh, um, space and I spent 12 years uh, um, in uh, investment bank banks. After, and also I, I was in a, Previously, I spent a couple of years in Japan um, at university as a researcher. Okay. So just going back to the very beginnings, when you first started studying, um, what were you studying there? Was that in Italy? Yes, I, I, I studied in Italy. And um, I, I, I spent some... Uh, I had, of course, some experiences abroad, uh, uh, but uh, I... I, I wasn't really uh, very sure about uh, what I was going to do uh, of my life and what kind of job I could really have. I was really exploring uh, uh, the economic space and uh, I wanted uh, I wanted to really to do something that could mean something to me and others, but I really didn't know exactly what at that time. Mm. And is that so? That research that you were doing was that in that space of economics and things, or yes, I it was uh, um, studying the economic models, the development economic models in emerging markets mm -hmm. in Asia, and uh, so this is why I spent two years in Japan. And what was it like moving to Japan? Where do you come straight from Italy to Japan? Well, actually, before Japan, I spent six months in France. And uh, was I remember that it was quite a shock uh, learning that I was uh, admitted to uh, a class in J a, a master class in Japan because uh, I thought that it could be really a big shift at that time. But um, I wanted uh, I wanted really to challenge myself. And uh, going to Japan without knowing any word in Japanese right. uh, could really sound a little bit crazy. But uh, I was really very fascinated by the country and what I could really do um, far away from my, from my roots. Mm. And I guess, the, is that when you were studying Asian economies as well? Yes, yeah. exactly, that yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a perfect base to be able to do that from. Yeah, and uh, the first time, actually, the first time I was in Japan was in 89, mm -hmm. uh, when uh, the, the economy was uh, still booming. And uh, uh, it was uh, um, quite uh, overwhelming seeing a see a country uh, where there was a lot of uh, energy and uh, a basically uh, unemployment really didn't exist. Mm. And compared to the to Italy and Europe, um, but then I went back to Japan a couple of years later, and there were already signs and premises of a bubble economy, so a declining economy already, and um, so they, they, that experience really offered me the opportunity uh, to see the up upturn and downturn of the economy mm. in a very short time. Mm. So it was more than just a theory, wasn't it? Because you were actually 
living there and seeing it day yes. to day. Yes, and uh, it, it was really, I, I think it was a shock for the country uh, to learn at that time that uh, after, after the university, after graduated, you couldn't really not be sure any longer to, to get a, a life um, a life employment mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, in in Europe of course we were used to uh, to this insecurity but for Japan it was definitely uh, a big shock mm-hmm. and what was the reaction of your friends or family when you told them I'm moving to Japan well uh, um, I, I, I think that uh, they thought that uh, it was a crazy uh, it was uh, it was I w- it was not really understand understandable because uh, I could uh, get settled uh, in Italy. I graduated from uh, um, a business school and I had already some uh, offers, but uh, I wanted to see more and uh, really to learn about uh, different countries. Mm. So that was the. I guess that was the motivation, the opportunity to, to go to a completely different place. Yes, and I, I've been always attracted by something, but I, by something as someone and a situation that I don't uh, uh, really understand at the first glance. Where did that begin, do you think? Can you, uh, well, can you trace a, it back? Well, it's a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not really sure, but... Uh, uh, I uh, I studied at boarding school, uh, so I left my family when I was uh, 10 years old. Uh, and that is very unusual in Italy. In Italy, there are just maybe a couple of boarding school. And it's uh, not really the way you, um, you, you really grow up. Far away from a, from a family, being on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think I develop a, a sort of... Uh, autonomy mm. and a sort of really um almost like independence maybe yes yeah. yes so i wanted to probably prove myself and others that i could really do and it was i think also also to prove my father mainly mm-hmm. uh, that uh, i i could really i could really do something uh, that uh, he believed uh, I was not really able to do. Mm. That's interesting. So it's very yeah. much it's very much the 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 the, the relationship uh, I had with my father mainly. Mm. Mm. My um, I have a similar experience to you because I moved to Japan when I was twenty, uh, just turning twenty one years old, so quite young, and it was similar reactions from people saying why would you go to japan because i didn't speak japanese and for me it was down to what will i look back on and you know regret as a missed opportunity and it felt like this was an opportunity that i needed to grab yes but uh, you know i for a long time in japan i i i look at that time when i look back at that time i think it was one of the best but also worst time in my life Mm. it was uh, uh, very challenging because of the language barrier i I, for a long time i couldn't really understand what was happening around me Mm. i couldn't really uh, get into 
uh, really the daily life. Uh, I couldn't understand uh, what news the television or mm. the radio um, say, and uh, I couldn't read the newspaper. So it was a sort of a really frustration and isolation. Mm. And that was really very tough. And at that time, there were no mobiles, uh, no, uh, we couldn't really communicate uh, uh, with uh, people in the world back home. Uh, I couldn't really call my parents uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, there wasn't Skype like there is right, today. <laughs> exactly. And it sounds very strange now, mm. but uh, it, it was really the time when you, you uh, used to write letters and, you know, maybe just have a call uh, once a week so you were basically on your own uh, mm-hmm. in a different a completely different uh, world uh, uncharted uh, waters uh, mm-hmm. and uh, trying to figure out how you could really survive uh, to mm-hmm. a certain extent mm-hmm. so that isolation sounds like that was the difficult part what was the um the positives or the things that you enjoyed about your time there well, that was every day was a discovery. Every day was uh, was realizing that uh, people are different, and uh, people are dif- even if are different uh, can be equally be really amazing people. Uh, so you are you are really facing uh, the uh, really the many many nuances you have in life. You learn how to relate uh, to people who apparently are very far from you, are very different from you. So I think that I understand uh, uh, the word diversity. Mm. And is that something that you've taken from that experience? And looking back, you can see that that was the beginning of it? I think so, Mm. because uh, again, I... I was very much fascinated by this, uh, uh, the possibility to learn uh, on a daily basis something new. I understand that you never stop learning. And uh, at the same time, I learned that uh, the learning process sometimes is painful and goes through these uh, difficult times as well. All the choices I made um, in the following years, uh, re- reminded me something that I experienced uh, in Japan. So it sounds like that was quite a key influence on what came later. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was. And, and so we talked about your father before. What was his reaction to your having gone? And did he come around and see, yes, it was a good thing? Or how uh, did that work out? It, it, yeah, it was... You know, he used to challenge my. He used to challenge me, and uh, but because he wanted to feel proud, and so he wanted just to to show me challenge by by challenging me that uh, I could really achieve something. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then after your time in Japan, what happened next? Is that when you joined a bank or or? Other things uh, happen in between. Yeah, I I went well. I left Japan to go back to Italy, and again it was a painful decision uh, because I understood that uh, after two years, uh, it was really about time to decide whether to get settled there mm. or maybe do something else and move uh, back to 
maybe to Italy mm -hmm. or other country. Um, because Japan at that time was not really very friendly with uh, women, mainly, and European. And my only choice at that time was to really become a sort of a tea lady. And uh, um, so there was really no possibility to stay there. And uh, this is why I decided to leave and go back to Italy. And uh, once back to Italy, I, I was, uh, again, not sure about what to do. I worked at a university for a while, and uh, then I had uh, did, well, a couple of uh, job opportunities. And uh, when I joined the financial system, um, I was not really sure that it was really my job, but uh, it was a sort of a courting um, uh, by the, 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 the company and uh, the CEO who wanted me working with uh, this, uh, his company. So I was uh, really convinced uh, to, to join uh, this. Uh, uh, it was a Japanese company in uh, the financial system and covering emerging market in Japan. So I felt that I could, uh, you know, really leverage on my experience in Japan. And uh, this is why I, I started working in finance, but not really sure that it was my, the job of my life. And right. it wasn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you found that out a bit later. <laughs> exactly. So, so I'm just curious in terms of, I think what we'll do is skip forward a little bit yeah. and talk a little bit about social enterprise. And just when did you first come across that as an option or as a even a, a term? Because <laughs> okay. um, you'd been working in the bank and, and looking at financing to yeah. developing countries. So there is a kind of a natural fit with what you're doing now. Um, just yeah. explain a little bit about how that happened. Well, I think that uh, I first uh, experienced uh, a very, uh, an, a, the very first inflection point uh, in my life uh, when uh, I, uh, while doing finance, uh, I found out that the finance I was dealing with uh, was not really contributing to the wealth of the many people of the many but just for the to the few mm. and um, I clearly remember the day when I found out it I was in India and um, interviewing some uh, a CEO of a big corporation but I was really thinking about the people living in Islam exactly in the in the surrounding of that uh, of that company and uh, um, the person I was interviewing I was really uh, talking about a different economy, a different reality, and not caring about uh, the majority of people uh, living there, the, the people, the poor people. So it was exa exactly at that time when I decided uh, to leave this, uh, the crowd, uh, I used to say, I say, the, the, the gray crowd, the crowd, the people in finance and join the happy crowd, the people really working to make to making difference. And I joined the, an NGO. Well, it took a while, but uh, I joined then. Uh, it, just just yeah. sorry to interrupt you. Just that moment or that day that you were interviewing, you recall it that clearly? That like, clearly, yeah. yes. 
That's amazing. Yes, I, I, because, uh, well, as I say, it was a really a big inflection point and uh, I was with a client uh, and uh, we were in uh, this uh, shining building in Mumbai, in Mumbai the, the headquarters of the ICIC bank, uh, one of the largest in the country. Um, and uh, we were at the 10, where probably was 18 floor mm. of this new New build, a new, newly built building, and uh, I was looking uh, down from the window, and there was this huge slam there, and it was like uh, it was a shock, um, because I was wondering exactly at that time what I was doing there, mm. and uh, why I was not looking at the those people down, but just talking uh, at the other people up. Mm. Because you can look at India from a different perspective. Down, really down to the pavement, at the pavement where people live, and up at, at the headquarters of this big corporation where mm. the other and the really a minority of the population live and do business and run business, uh, not caring about what's happening to the mm. really the majority of population. So. Yeah, thank you for explaining that because I think it's important to to capture those moments in other people's stories because it's it's so powerful. You know, like I I agree with you completely to look from the lofty tower out on the masses in the slum. You know, it's quite a contrast, isn't it? To, yes, it to is. To change your perspective. Yeah, and especially in India, when you you see people living and dying on really in the street. And uh, so I was really wondering why I was not asking the right question. The right. people I was interviewing, I was not really putting my money and my clients' money into enterprises that could make a difference in the life of these people living in the street. Mm. So that was the moment when I decided that it was a, about time to really to make a change in my life, mm. uh, not caring any longer about making a lot of money and, uh, you know, traveling business class and uh, spoiling myself, entertaining myself in a um, beautiful hotel and uh, really glamorous life. Mm. So you were ready to embrace a new way of doing things, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, and that was the time when mm. people around me, my family too, thought that I was completely crazy. <laughs> right, because <laughs> you were about to give up something that you'd worked hard for yes. and uh, go a different way. Yes. Yeah. So when was that? It was 2005. Mm -hmm. And um, So what happened once you'd had that realization, you're flying back from India and you start talking with your friends and family and say, look, I think I need to do something different. What, yeah. does that, what does the shape of that become or how did you explore what the options might be? At that time, I realized that I was not fitting in any longer in, in, the, in my life, in the life I was really living at that time. But it took a year before really making the move. Mm -hmm. I just... Uh, decided uh, to start working for an NGO, not knowing which one in Italy. But, and I decided to take a leave, a year leave, and uh, 
volunteer in, a, in an NGO. But then it didn't really happen as I was expected because I applied for the job uh, for being a volunteer. But then after the interview, they offered me a proper job. And in here, I was uh, uh, appointed CEO of that NGO. Right. So what did that NGO involve? What was it, what was it doing? <laughs> Mainly, it was at that time, it was very much a conventional NGO running uh, and carrying on uh, development projects in the developing countries. Did it have a particular focus like Africa or Asia or was it just Yeah, ma- mainly Africa, mm-hmm. mainly Africa, 16 countries across the world, but mm. majority in Africa. Mm. Yeah. And because I think you said you'd volunteered in Kenya in yes. university, right? At university, yeah. So that's kind of a nice connection for you, I guess. Yes, yes. And uh, I do remember that when they offered me a job, uh, my husband uh, warned me not to get too excited uh, because he knows uh, that uh, I could feel really very happy to have found the way to go back to Africa or to to go back to Africa to work or to do something in Africa because he knew that uh, the time of my first uh, experience in Africa was really full of good memories Mm. for me. So that time in Africa, we didn't go into that much detail before, but it had stuck with you all those years, had it? Yes, yes. What was the main thing that made you remember that time? Well, the kids, the kids, the, uh, the, the, the many beautiful uh, uh, kids uh, uh, of the village, uh, always smiling, uh, despite not having anything, mm. never complaining and never crying. So, uh, you know, kids in Africa don't really cry mm. unless they really feel a pain. But uh, so a life, very simple life, uh, very... But really happy. Mm. So I have these beautiful memories. Mm. It's interesting because I've interviewed another person who's from Kenya, from Nairobi, and he lives here in Christchurch now. So that's going to be one of the episodes I, I put on. But he was describing his childhood that they would make things from whatever was available. So they might see something on TV or the movies and then kind of get rubber bands and string and, and they were happy. And he, he said sometimes um, there's a danger of wearing Western culture glasses and thinking they must be unhappy because they don't have shoes, when actually they were happy. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, And uh, you're right. Uh, We we always use it to to look at people uh, from our perspective. But uh, I uh, I learn from uh, my time in Japan and my my short time in uh, in Kenya at university time that... uh, uh, you never should really judge uh, mm. how people live and how people enjoy life or how people really are uh, feel blessed and privileged uh, mm. uh, to a certain extent. Mm. Yeah. So we're up to where you're um, now running the NGO. <laughs> yeah. Going. And so did that, what did that involve? Well, I, to tell the truth, for the first uh, Two years, uh, I used really to travel extensively in the countries where we were uh, carrying uh, on these uh, development projects, uh, cutting 
uh, it was like a cutting the, the ribbon, the, like uh, the when you... Right, opening ceremony. Opening <laughs> ceremony, and I was the one, you know, shaking hands with uh, the local partners and local authorities, uh, being thanked for what uh, we could do. And uh, I always felt uh, a sort of um, uncomfortable feeling um, because it was like uh, a distance. I was the one giving and uh, they were the people who were receiving. And uh, I found really the, uh, the unbalance of this relationship. Again, after a couple of years, I had what I call my second inflection point Um, because I realized, I found out that what we used to do was wrong and the way we used to run our projects was not really the proper way. And uh, that was the time uh, that I found out uh, about social enterprises and social entrepreneurship. Mm. And was that a gradual process as well, or was it something that um, happened quite quickly? No, it happened quite quickly. And again, because uh, I was, uh, I, and I do remember clearly that day, because I mm. was in Cameroon, in a very marginal, marginalized area, mm. uh, where we uh, built a lot uh, of wells. And uh, the day we were supposed to have the, op- the opening ceremony, mm-hmm. uh, there were wells that didn't work uh, because there were like uh, um, some spare parts that couldn't be found in the local market. Mm-hmm. And so not, not like two, five years after the completion, but uh, the same day. Right. So to me, it was a completely failure. And uh, to me, having raised the expectation among the local people that uh, they could, and local women, that they could not uh, walk uh, for two hours uh, to go to fetch water in the close by, well, not really close by, but in the river, uh, um, it w- was not uh, right because uh, they were really uh, back to to the situation they were before we went there. So I decided uh, immediately, well, I talked immediately to my board and my team that we had to change and reshape and re-engineer completely the way we used to, to work and uh, to, to really to, to, to define our strategy and our activity on the field. Mm. And is and was that well received or what happened next? Well, it was uh, everyone was aware that there was something wrong, but uh, to change uh, an organizational culture takes a long time. Mm. So uh, it was a long process, mm. and uh, it was uh, so to say that was well received. No, I wouldn't really say that mm. because it required a lot of changes and. Uh, to change requires you to have an open mind, to exit from your uh, comfort zone and uh, to find other solutions. And people are uh, not really ready to do it, mm. not all the time. Mm. One of the things I like to ask people sometimes is, 
what do you wish that you'd known <laughs> when you first came back from Cameroon and you'd seen that experience? Like if you could give yourself advice, was there anything about that change process? That well, first of all, it's easier to, it's easier to set up a new organization with the, with the right mindset rather than change Mm. Uh, something that has uh, been uh, rooted uh, in a different way. And so this is why, basically, I, I founded then uh, Opus. So what year did you found Opus? What? It was five years ago. Mm -hmm. I founded Opus because uh, I decided that I wanted to work uh, uh, in an organization really very focused on a social enterprise, on, promo on promoting social enterprise and social entrepreneurship. What was the reaction from people when you told them, this is what I'm going to do? Well, it was a shock. Mm. Again, and and especially because in Italy, no one before us had uh, uh, piloted something similar. Mm. So we were really the first one setting up uh, an investment vehicle targeting social enterprises in developing countries uh, in Italy. Right. Wow. So you're blazing a trail, <laughs> doing something different. Yeah, but uh, I, w I was, of course, uh, not inventing uh, anything because in the world, uh, impact investing uh, was already uh, was already there. Mm. So you were able to look at some examples from other yeah. places. Yeah, and, yeah. I, I went to um, I went to um, New York to uh, meet Acumen Fund, uh, which is a pioneer in this space, uh, and I really. I travel extensively and I meet other people before setting up Opus. Mm. It took two years. We, we made really a long feasibility study. We mm. talk to social entrepreneurs, to investors, to research centers, to intermediaries. We wanted to make sure that our product could filling a gap or contributing and filling in a gap. We didn't want, really want to duplicate something that was already existing, mm. but something that could really support uh, social enterprises. Mm. Wow. So two years of research before you actually yeah. launched. Yeah. 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 And just describe a little bit maybe about the journey in the last five years then. Um, how was it initially received and how is it going now? And and also I'm curious about what sort of projects or things that you're looking to support around the world. Okay. Well, as I say in Italy, uh, we were the first one and uh, we are still the only one. At the time in 2011, when we started the feasibility study and in 2013, when we officially launched uh, Opus, really no one... Uh, I uh, used to talk about impact investing in Italy. And uh, it was not a, such a fashionable wor world as it is today. But uh, there were some uh, philanthropic organizations, some foundations that uh, decided uh, to take up really, the, to, to accept the challenge, to embrace the challenge and to support us because Opus is an hybrid organization. So we raise the philanthropic capital and we deploy investment capital. 
we wanted to have a very high risk tolerance in order really to support uh, early stage uh, social enterprises uh, there that they are to do what others don't. And so we need a really high risk tolerance, uh, patient capital, and we thought that uh, philanthropic capital was really the best uh, capital we could raise. Mm. So they were not a large number, but uh, uh, quite a sizable foundation, number of foundations uh, uh, that we start to talk to and we raise the first uh, uh, money to really to deploy to benefit uh, social enterprises. And we really look at uh, early stage social enterprises, uh, mainly in East Africa, but also in other countries. Mm. So what would be an example of a social enterprise or what would be the process to find them and then actually making a decision, yes, this is this is a good thing and we want to invest? Um, maybe just a you know, hypothetical example of yeah. how that would work. Well, the first investment we made was in 2013 in a social enterprise in Kenya. It was just a six months pilot, but already with some traction in the market, some revenues, of course, not on break even. And we decided to invest, of course, we made a due diligence, a due diligence uh, really looking at the social and potential social impact and the financial, uh, so really the track on sustainability. And we decided to invest mainly because we trusted the management we were in love, uh, we fall in love with, with idea that this company was really embedding. And the idea was to really reduce what we call poverty penalty uh, because pe poor people living in slum or living in a rural area have no access to product, any kind of product. And when they do have access, they do pay more than other people living outside the slum or, or in a different areas. So this is called the poverty penalty. And Copia is a distribution platform online and uh, offline, distributing any kind of product to poor people at a very affordable price. So we wanted to uh, really support companies that are able to tackle a problem with very affordable solutions and inclusive solution. Hmm. That's a great example. And have you continued to find other examples of like that in Africa? Is that your main focus? Yeah, we don't have any. Uh, we are not uh, sector focused, so we are very agnostic. Uh, and uh, we are looking for disruptive solutions uh, to, uh, in the sense of solutions that are can really disrupt the industry or can really disrupt uh, the status quo. Mm. For instance, in Uganda, we invested uh, in a, a manufacturing and distribution company uh, that is manufacturing uh, uh, reusable sanitary pads that are very affordable uh, for women. And we could not know, but uh, in Africa, around 300 million uh, women uh, are not able to buy disposable pads because they're too expensive. And so we invested in this company because they are able to produce a kit 
of uh, that last year, and it costs only for for uh, uh, US dollar. Wow. So it's really having an impact, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's and great. they are growing. The two companies I mentioned are really growing very nicely. They are impacting the life of a million people. And in Uganda, we have 140 employees, mainly women. They pay taxes in their country and they are very proud of it. And in, uh, in Kenya, Copia uh, has 1,600 agents that, that saw their, an increase in their income of uh, around 40%. Mm. That's really good. It's, um, yeah, it's so inspiring to hear about what's happening in other parts of the world, particularly places that are poorer. <laughs> yeah. And I guess for you, remembering back to that time in Mumbai, sitting in the building, looking out at the slums. How, how do you feel now doing what you're doing? Well, but I feel um, really the privilege to have found this new way of, of leveraging my background in finance, mm. but doing much better finance. Yeah. Really finance that whose aim is not to make rich people richer, but uh, to really make uh, our world uh, uh, more equal mm. to, and uh, more just. Mm. That's awesome. So we're, we're talking now, it's about to be the Social Enterprise World Forum here in Christchurch. Um, yeah. Just talking about that, what are you looking forward to in the coming week? Well, I came with the expectation uh, really to learn first about uh, the social enterprise landscape here in New Zealand, to, to understand how we are all similar uh, despite our difference. And to, I, I really, I'm really keen to be inspired by people, stories and experiences. We need uh, every day to look at uh, examples, good examples, and uh, otherwise we can't think that uh, what we do is just uh, a small drop uh, in the ocean. And, um, but if we see the multitude, uh, the really the many people who are doing things, great things, uh, we feel really encouraged uh, to keep doing what we do. I agree with you. And that, that's actually one of the reasons I've started this podcast is to try to tell people's stories in a different way. Because I think in current culture, it's like, tell me what you do, but I only have 30 seconds. You know? <laughs> true. You've got to, I really want to understand what you do, but I've, I'm very busy as well. So I'm hoping that this format where like, we've been able to have a good discussion that gets a bit deeper and, you know, we'll look at that history of a life, you know. And is there anything else you want to say about the forum? Or Well, I like uh, and I hope to see also many young people mm -hmm. joining the forum, attending the forum. I believe that uh, we should be able as a, uh, as a movement uh, really to attract more, increasingly more and more young people mm -hmm. because they are really the one who can make the difference. And... Uh, I like to see peop young people on stage, off stage, talking to it, to um, as many people as possible, uh, listening, but also inspiring us uh, um, 
old people. <laughs> so I really looking at to I I I'm really fascinated by how the the the, the millennials now are really shifting and re- really framing it, uh, their way of looking at uh, our contemporary issues, our really challenges in a different way, and uh, it's really wholesome. Mm, it's really exciting, isn't it, to see yes. so many people coming through with new ideas as well, yeah. and disruptive ideas, right? That yeah. actually we can do things differently to the way it's been done. Yeah. Now, I have to ask you, um, I told you before that I've been to Italy before, but I probably didn't go to the right places. <laughs> so from your perspective, is there some places that you, you would say, wow, if you're going to go to Italy, you've got to go here or there? Do you have any favorite spots that you can... Okay, my favorite spot, but probably not for a good reason, is Sicily. Because the reason why I love Sicily is because of the food. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> but also because uh, it's, um, it's in southern Italy, uh, where the uh, youth unemployment especially is really very, very high. In uh, certain places, uh, around 50 60%. But it's there, exactly there, where you find these young people with amazing ideas. They just need uh, uh, people uh, able to really listen to them and uh, um, able to really support them. So mm-hmm. I, I think where there, is, uh, where there are the highest and greatest challenges, you have the best ideas. Mm. And that reminds me, because at the beginning you said that you were hoping to expand into Italy, right? So is that the sort of area you're hoping to go to? Or uh, we, hope so. <laughs> we hope so. We will start uh, deploying some capital and uh, supporting uh, um, with investment a social enterprise in Italy in the next coming months. I'm not really sure that we will be able to go to Sicily mm-hmm. uh, or to support the social enterprises there, but um, hopefully in the, near, in the near future. Yeah, who knows what the future holds, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just to finish off, just thinking the word purpose, I use that a lot in this podcast. Why is acting with purpose important to you? Uh, because I don't see any, any other way to, to act and to live. Mm. Because I think that uh, at the end, everyone, every each of us uh, will ask and will wonder, will ask himself and will wonder why is here and uh, why is uh, on this planet and why is uh, living and existing a life. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, we should all live with the idea of making a difference mm-hmm. or trying to. Trying to. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your time, Elena. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And yeah, I'm just excited because we have the forum coming up. So no doubt I'll see you around. But um, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you very much. Well, once again, I've been challenged and inspired by listening to someone living a life of purpose. I think you'll agree that Elena had a lot of amazing stories to share, and I certainly learned a lot about impact investing from her. Thanks, Elena, for taking time to speak with me. And I look forward to dropping by Italy at some point and catching up. Now, in next week's episode, we're going to be speaking with Gary Shaw, who spent many years working as an anti-human trafficker. And he's very transparent about his journey and both the highs and the lows that came with it. 
Here's an excerpt from the interview with him. Uh, so I suppose just to, to go through that fire and, and have all of that um, uh, burned up and destroyed and to come out the other end, uh, just being for the first time in my life at rest and at peace, that before I do anything, I am enough. That before I participate in uh, the journey toward greater freedom for whether that be literal freedom in the form of a slave or, or emotional, psychological, spiritual freedom, that, uh, that I am already free. I know you're going to be challenged by the interview with Gary, and I hope you can join me. Until next time.